You're listening to the Sunday podcast from Life Point Church in Santan Valley, Arizona. We hope you are encouraged by today's message. For more information, visit us online at lifepointaz.com. Well, good morning. Good morning. Oh, I'm not on yet. There we go. There we go. Good morning. Again. For those of you who don't know me, I am Chad. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm known as the part-time, part-time, part-time guy. Um, I'm just, last service, it was a joke. It's like, how many times am I going to say part-time? Um, but so I, I'm Chad Roach. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, real quick announcements. Um, this Friday night at 7 p.m., if you have not gotten the weekly flyer, I suggest you grab it because all the cool kids will be there. Um, but this Friday is the All Church Night of Prayer. It will be here at LifePoint. Um, so come on out. There we go. Yeah, come on out and have a great uh, time of worship and prayer. And the next Sunday uh, is the second annual Black Sheep Bike Blessing and Church Picnic. So come on out and have some fun. Uh, uh, Here's some loud motorcycles. I don't know. Um, um, all right, so this morning uh, I'm going to be kind of continuing on what I talked about last week. Um, so if you have your Bibles or an app on your phone, open to Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. And some of you will know this as the beginning uh, of the Sermon on the Mount. So before I get in, uh, let's pray. Father God, it is because of you that we do everything. You call the day, day. By your word, everything was created and everything is sustained. And Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice on the cross. Because without it, we are not able to approach the throne of heaven. But because of it, we are made righteous and clean and beautiful in Jesus' name. It is all things we do, and we pray in his name. Amen. All right, so we talked about sin and the law and to what extent the Ten Commandments apply to Gentile Christians and how it applies to us today in the New Covenant, right? So this week, we're going to build on that a little bit and talk about what it means when Jesus fulfills the law. Because a lot of Christians, a lot of churches, in my opinion, have that wrong. Verse 17, it says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I could probably stand up here and preach an entire month worth of sermons on this one verse. In fact, entire books have been written on this one verse. There is so much theology, there is uh, language issues going on here, there is, there is intertestamentality between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So many things are brought in in one verse. So I hope you have time. It's going to be about an hour-ish. Um, no, I actually do have to trim it down because it's nice and long, but... But what is Jesus talking about? So we're going to go through this. This will be the first time probably for most of you you've ever spent 40 minutes or so going through four verses. Um, but that's what we're going to do this morning uh, as we unpack what is the Sermon on the Mount. So the entire Sermon on the Mount uh, in Matthew's Gospel is chapters 5 through 7. Um, we're going to be mainly in chapter 5. Uh, and if you want to know more about this stuff, I would encourage you to read on, this, on your own. Um, spend time in the Sermon on the Mount. I, I brought up a great book. I didn't write it. Um, but Reading Moses, Seeing Jesus. This is written by three Messianic Jews uh, who love Jesus and who are PhDs and Hebrew scholars and know what they're talking about. And uh, it's a great easy read. It's awesome. So it's, it's Reading Moses, Seeing Jesus. 
It's a beautiful, awesome book. Um, I would highly recommend it if this topic interests you at all. In verse 17, he says, Do not think that I have come. That phrase alone, there's, there's something there. Why is Jesus saying, do not think? Why is he saying, why is he starting this out? He starts with the Beatitudes, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit, you know, uh, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst uh, for righteousness, for they shall be filled. And then he gets into this part. But why does he say that? Well, because at the end of chapter 4, Jesus is going around doing a bunch of miracles in Galilee. And his notoriety has begun to grow exponentially and very, very fast. He is being known as this guy who is doing signs and wonders and healings, and he's preaching uh, uh, the law, he's talking Moses, and, and he's preaching as, as a man with authority. And so he starts this out by saying, do not think that, because in Deuteronomy 13 it says, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods, let us serve them, you shall not listen to that prophet. He knows that this Jewish audience is going to evaluate the things he says based on the law itself. And in Deuteronomy 13 says, if a preacher comes along, signs and wonders and a prophet and the things that he says come true, don't take that at face value. Because if he tries to lead you to any other God, he is not a prophet. And so the measure here is if Jesus is doing that, he's not Messiah, period. Because Messiah would not teach against the law of God. He wouldn't. And so he knows that this primarily Jewish audience he's speaking to is expecting this. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. Well, as promised, every time I preach, let's get into the Greek. In the Greek, it's ok elthon katalisai ala plerasai. I have not come to abolish but fulfill. Again, I, this, that, that sentence by itself, katalisai means to abolish and plerosai means to fulfill. And that word there, fulfill, a lot of Christians really get it wrong. The root word of that, and I'm not, I can't go into an extended Greek lesson, but the AI in the end of the word tells us it's to fulfill. But the root word there, uh, plerao, has a couple different meanings. And two main meanings are applicable here. And, and I, 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 somebody said to me after last service, well, how do, how do you study this kind of stuff? And I would say there's concordances and lexicons, but be careful. Because just looking at a word study by itself, out of context, will not give you the meaning of the word. In context. And what do I mean by that? If I were to ask you to define the English word mean, what does it mean when I ask you to give me the mean of those numbers, but don't be mean when you do it? Know what I mean? <laughs> right? One word whole bunch of different meanings. Yes, I intended that. The, the, all these different meanings, right? Well, the same works in other languages. Out of context, it's basically just a proof text saying, oh, well, I know what that word means. It means this. Okay, does it really? So what is Jesus saying? He is making a point to say he has fulfilled the law and the prophets. Well, the prophecy part is easy. The messianic prophecies, we can go to Isaiah 53, we can go to Ezekiel and Daniel, we can go all these messianic prophecies and see how Jesus fulfilled them. That's kind of the easy one. Right? 
How did he fulfill, uh, we talked about the ceremonial law last week. How did he fulfill the ceremonial law? I could sit up here for hours talking about this one. Um, there's seven Jewish feasts, uh, four in the spring, three in the fall. He has already fulfilled the four spring festivals. Uh, in his first coming, he will fulfill the latter three fall festivals. In his second coming, it's awesome. It's super cool. Um, one of those is Passover. He is the Passover lamb, right? But what does it mean when he fulfills the law and the prophets? The two meanings there cannot mean status quo. It cannot mean continue on the way you've always been going. Why? Because then why did he need to come? If everything was fine, if the status quo was okay, why do we need Jesus? So status quo cannot be one of the meanings of fulfill. But he didn't come to abolish the law or the prophets. The law isn't erased It's fulfilled. The word there also means to fill up. Like if I was to have a cup and I filled up a cup, plurao means to fill up. So what does it mean? The context, especially in light of what comes next, which we're going to unpack, is that Jesus not only fulfills certain anticipated roles, but also that his interpretation of the scriptures completes and clarifies God's intent and meaning through it. Everything in the Old Testament Everything intended to communicate about God's will, God's intent, God's hopes, God's everything God has for humanity, the future God has for humanity, finds its fullest and deepest, most complete meaning in Jesus. Jesus has come to actualize the scriptures and take his disciples to a deeper understanding of its intended meaning. Plerao, fulfill, means to complete the demand of the law, the prophecies of the prophets, the promises given to the patriarchs, Abraham, Noah. And it also means to explain the full meaning, to give the proper teaching, right? Because remember, Jesus is Yahweh. He is saying, yeah, Moses did these things, but I'm telling you, my authority is greater, and this is what it actually means. Y'all got it wrong. Which is ironic because the Pharisees thought that they were up here in reality, and and everybody else thought they were up here too as far as their righteousness and their obedience, but in reality, the standard was up here. You remember last week I talked about chata, the Hebrew word for sin, meaning to miss the goal or miss the point. Well, guess what the goal of the law is? Jesus. The goal is to point you to God's perfect righteousness and our need for a Savior. That's the goal. So to miss the mark, to miss the point, is to miss Jesus, is to look past Jesus, to be disobedient to Jesus. When he fulfills the demand of the law, It's not binding, but again, to a primarily Jewish audience, in order to establish himself as Messiah, he must say, I'm not coming to abolish the law. The way I like to think about it is when I joined the Navy, I signed a contract, right? And all through the Old Testament, we have different covenants between God and man. And each and every time, God fulfilled his end of the promise, and man didn't, when there was a a command to do something. So when I joined the Navy, I had a contract. I I signed a contract with the representative of the government, right? 
And in that contract, the terms were binding. I had at least four years that I gave my life up to and including literally my life. And in return, they were going to give me certain things, a paycheck. They said it would be a free college education, but this was in the 90s, and I think it paid for like half my bachelor's degree. But anyway, um, it did not cover college. But needless to say, they upheld their end of the agreement. I upheld my end of the agreement, and the contract was fulfilled and is therefore no longer binding. Now, do I still get benefit from that contract? Yes. I'm a disabled vet. I get a paycheck every month. Did that, did that time teach me something? Yes. Can I learn something from that time? You bet. Is that contract still binding on my life? No. It's not erased. I actually tried to find it, but I couldn't. I still have the old contract. Um, it's not erased. It's not done away with, but it's not binding. Verse 18. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. The iota is a Greek letter. It's the smallest one. Looks like a little I. And then a dot would be, in the Greek, would be the dot above the I, is what he's talking about. But in the Hebrew, it actually works better because the yod and the tittle actually mean something. The yod is a little apostrophe-looking mark, and it is a letter in the Hebrew language, or the Hebrew alphabet. I don't have it all memorized, but I left bet yod, yod's in there. It's a little tiny mark. And the tittle is even less significant if you look at it because it's the mark on another letter. It's a little swoop. Two seemingly insignificant marks in Hebrew and in Greek. And Jesus is saying, nothing is gone. This isn't abolished. This isn't erased and done away with until everything comes to pass not down to the smallest little mark. Well, what is he saying? What does that mean? Well, Paul tells us. Well, he tells Timothy. In 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Jesus is saying every word, every command that came from God is important. So important that I have come here at this time, right now, in this sermon on this mountain to explain to you what it really means and what it really means to be obedient to God and how to follow me. Jesus is clearly telling his listeners that every word of Scripture is important. And when you really think about that, to me, it's mind-blowing that the same Bible I have on my iPad and some of you have in front of you are the very words that Eusebius, Augustine, Ignatius, Origen, Martin Luther, Charles Spurgeon. It's the same things they were reading over thousands of years. If anybody doubts the authenticity of the Bible, that fact alone, the fact that it has been so perfectly preserved over millennia is miraculous. It is supernatural. The fact that, that I can open my Bible and over the centuries of the 5,800 manuscripts we have of the New Testament alone, century after century, they are consistent, they are accurate, and they say the same thing my Bible says today. That's just mind-blowing. 
What's even more mind-blowing about the scripture, we have 66 books written by about 40 different authors in three different languages over 1,600 years, and the way they line up perfectly is inhuman. It is impossible for humans to do this. This could not, people say, oh, the Bible was just made up. No way. To be that accurate over the geography, the years, the languages, the cultures, no way. There is no way this could be made up. If you didn't know this, one of the coolest things, a lot of, a lot of people overlook the Dead Sea Scrolls and be, oh yeah, we know what that is, whatever. But that find was so monumental. And here's why. In 1946, you have this little Arab kid who's throwing rocks into a cave, more or less, right? And he breaks a jar. Well, in that jar are ancient scrolls. Now, the reason this is so big is because up to this point, the oldest copy, the oldest manuscript of the Old Testament we had as humanity was from about 900 AD. The Aleppo Codex is what it's called. It wasn't the only one, but it was the oldest one. Now we get into Qumran, which is the people of Qumran. If a little more history for you, you had the, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the Essenes. The Essenes were kind of the hippies of the group. And that was kind of what we think of the people of Qumran were the Essenes. Okay? So they wrote down, it wasn't just copies of the Bible, it was commentaries. It was ways to understand their languages. And it was, the find was miraculous. Well, in there, we have a complete scroll of Isaiah. Complete. To this very day, it's preserved, it's perfect, it's complete, and it matches Isaiah in your Bible right now today. Perfectly. The more miraculous thing was, these scrolls from the Dead Sea Scrolls in Qumran are dated to 180 B.C. A thousand year period from the oldest manuscript we had to now this new find in 1946, which we are still unpacking to this very day. MRI technology allows us to unroll scrolls without actually unrolling them. It's pretty cool. A thousand year period, and it still lines up perfectly. Folks, that is not of humans. There is no other document in antiquity that even comes close to the Bible. Not even close. The next closest is a 600 year gap, and that's the Quran. So why do I say that to you? Because Jesus is saying not a yod or a tittle, not the smallest mark. He has carefully preserved his word for us to know him. It's not about us. Verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of these, these, least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, there's a whole lot to unpack here, too. I'm not going to go into it. Uh, the, the, he tells us the reward in the Beatitudes in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. He's saying these are the things that you, should, you will be blessed for, blessed for being meek, blessed for being kind. And he's saying these are your blessings. You will not receive this reward necessarily in this life. You might but you'll definitely receive it the next. And the beautiful thing is, no matter what reward we get in the next life, we lay our crowns at the feet of Jesus. We turn those rewards over to Jesus because he is the reason we do it, period. Verse 20, 
For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, to a lot of us, that's like, so? (laughs) But remember, Matthew is writing and Jesus was speaking to a Jewish audience. These guys, the scribes and the Pharisees, were the apex. They were the tip of the spear as far as righteousness actions went. Righteous action and and their attitudes and what they did and their beliefs and what they taught. They were the top. And Jesus is saying, much to our culture and society today, being good is not going to get you into heaven. Because if you were going to be good enough, you'd have to be better than those guys. And this audience would look at Jesus like, yeah, but they're, I don't even come close to them. These are the guys that, that are, the, the chief priest is able to go into the presence of God, the Holy of Holies, once a year. And you're telling me I have to be more righteous than him? Well, Jesus, what they, what they would hear is basically, you're not getting in. If you have violated the law and you are not as righteous as the scribes and the Pharisees who have the Torah memorized, you're not getting in. Our society and the world today says, well, if I'm just good enough, I'll get into heaven. It's not what Jesus says. Jesus is saying, here, let me explain my heart behind the law. Jesus is God. He is the master interpreter of Scripture. Why? Because he wrote it. It's his. The law is given to Moses at Sinai. Nothing that was created came into creation that didn't go through Jesus. That means the law, which was created for man, came through Christ. He is the master interpreter of the law. And now what we're going to get into is his explanation of how to be obedient in the law. There are six statements, which are going to be on the screen here, that are called the antithesis, or the antithesis. And what he's, what he's saying is, you have heard that it said, what was said was this. That comes from what's called the Tanakh. The Tanakh is an abbreviation for all of the Old Testament. It's, a, it's the, the, the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim, which are the Torah is the first five books of the Bible, the uh, Nevi'im is the uh, uh, prophets, and the Ketuvim is the writings, the rest of it. And so that's the Tanakh, is the whole thing. And he's saying, this is what it says there, but I say to you, and in that statement by itself, Jesus is saying, you thought Moses had authority? My authority is greater than his, and this is what I say. So let's see what he says. You won't have them on the screen, but you can follow along if you want, if you have your Bible. Matthew 5, verse 21 and 22. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. He is quoting here from Exodus 20, verse 14, and Deuteronomy 5, 17, the Ten Commandments. That's what he's quoting from. Moses said, 
But in my greater authority, I'm telling you, here is the actual standard. You thought it was here. You thought the scribes and the Pharisees? No, no, the actual standard is way up here. In this verse, I love it because not only does he take it up one notch, he takes it up two notches. Those of us who've been in church for a while, yeah, yeah, I know. If I'm angry at my brother, I might as well have murdered him, right? And I'm a, I'm a high school teacher vocationally, and uh, when I taught through Matthew's gospel, <laughs> the kids are like, oh, so if I'm angry at my brother, I can just go ahead and kill him? No, that's not what that means. What it means is if you hold anger against your brother, and this is a universal term, this is not a gender-specific term, if you hold anger against somebody, you have equivocated yourself to the sin of murder. You have committed the equivalent sin as murder. doesn't mean you can go murder them. It means you've already committed a sin equivalent to that of murder. Yeah, but it's just anger. But wait, Jesus takes it up another notch. In the Aramaic, the word is racha, or raka, which means idiot. If you call somebody a fool, you are liable to the fires of hell. In the Greek, the word there is moros, from which we get our word moron. If you call somebody moron, stupid, foolish, an idiot, dumb, you have committed a sin equivalent to that of murder. Talk about an impossible standard. And if you don't think it's impossible, think of your least favorite politician. <laughs> Fool, idiot, mm-hmm. And maybe that was just this morning. I don't know. Um, but Right? Talk about an impossible standard. But wait, there's more. Matthew 5, verses 27 through 29. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Twice now he has ended this with, the, with, with hell, with Gehenna in the Greek, as, as, as an example of, of how bad this is. Here he's quoting from Exodus 20.14 and Deuteronomy 5.18. Again, the Ten Commandments. The word here, epithymeo, for lustful intent. We don't, we don't really have one word that translates from epithymeo into English. It means lustful intent. It means to uh, have a longing desire, a, a, a covetousness, covetousness, it's not easy to say, covetousness uh, towards a person, right, with evil intent. A great biblical example of this is David looking down on Bathsheba as she bathes on top of her roof now, was David's sin in looking at a naked woman? No, that's, that's human nature. The glance wasn't necessarily the sin. Where his sin came in was his evil desires and his evil intent, his lustful intent. Now, David doubled down on his sin and had her husband killed, and anyway, um, so he doubled down. But what Jesus is saying is your heart and your mind drive your action. Actions are important, but your heart and your mind drive those actions. This is why it's so important. He says later on, I think it's in chapter 8, 
that it's not what goes into us that defiles us, it's what comes out of us. It is the heart of man that is wicked and deceitful. And from there comes our sinful actions. Was David's initial action sinful? No. But out of his heart, he sinned significantly. So much so that he's liable to hell, says Jesus. But wait, there's more. Verses 31 and 32, Matthew 5, 31 32. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, Jesus is quoting from the law. But what's interesting is this time it's only Deuteronomy. The core of the Mosaic law is in Leviticus, uh, Deuteronomy, and Exodus. Not in that order. Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. That is the core of the law. There's some in Numbers, there's some in Genesis, but the core of it is in those three books. And throughout the entire Sermon on the Mount, guess which books of the Old Testament Jesus continually teaches from? Leviticus, Exodus, and Deuteronomy. Why? Because that's the law. So here he is in Deuteronomy 24, talking about the sanctity of marriage. See, because Moses to today, divorce was rampant. And it was for silliness. You're just, you're just tired of the person. So I'll get a divorce. What's interesting, and I think fascinating because of who Jesus is, is that under Moses' time, for most of the time, it meant that if there was sexual immorality in the marriage, you had to get a divorce. You would give them a certificate of divorce. They had to get divorced. But in Jesus, as true to who Jesus is, he says, no, 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 no. The sanctity of marriage is so important. There is forgiveness. There can be reconciliation. The marriage can be restored. And as somebody who's married for 22 years, I can tell you, marriage has its ups and downs. People in here who have been married as long or longer would agree with me. It has its ups and downs. But Jesus is saying, of all the things to pull from that is not in the Ten Commandments, he is saying the sanctity of marriage is so important to God. This is why one of the first things that Satan will attack in a household is the marriage. Why? Because if there isn't a marriage, there isn't a family. And the marriage has to sustain the children because the kids come and go. A lot of you already know this. But Jesus is saying the marriage is, is, is there's sanctity in that. And this first time that he deviates from the, old, from the Ten Commandments, to me, is one of the biggest pieces of evidence, and he continues to do this, as to how the law is not binding. Because if the entire law was binding, he would have just said so. You know how you properly keep Torah? Just keep Torah. But instead, he pulls specific pieces out of the Torah and says, no, no, this is the things that are important to God. These are the heavy and weighty things. These are the small things that you think are insignificant. The culture tells you are no big deal. But I tell you, these things are huge to God. If you want to know what it means to be obedient to Yahweh, this is what it means. Matthew 5, 33 and 34. Again, you have heard that it was one of those of old, it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, 
either by heaven, for it is the throne of God. And he goes on to say, let your yes be yes and your no be no. A seemingly small command. He's quoting from Leviticus 19 now. He's outside the Ten Commandments big time. A seemingly small command, a mitzvot, an ordinance, something, something minor. Keep your word. Be a person of integrity. You don't have to swear anything to God. Just have integrity. We have all the way from murder and adultery to be an honorable person. <laughs> be a person of your word. If you say you're going to do something, do it. Jesus is saying that. Something that seems so simple and so minuscule. But Jesus is saying, these are one of the most important things to my father, to me. What's cool is, again, now he's in Leviticus. 19 of all places, which in Leviticus 19, there's a lot of sexual morality laws, and it goes on to the food laws. But not one time in the Sermon on the Mount, and especially these six antitheses, does Jesus talk about what you can eat, what you should wear? Not once. He's saying, these are the things that are important. If you want to be obedient to God, and if you want to walk with me and follow me and live as I live, this is how you do it. Be a person of integrity. <laughs> so simple. Matthew 5, verse 38 through 42. Oh, we're not done yet. There's six. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go a mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. This is from Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. This term is mentioned in all three places. As promised, here's another language. This is the lex talionis. This is the law of retaliation, and that's from the Latin, right? And what's important here is if we look at this in context of, of ancient Israel, this was not person to person. This wasn't if you wrong me, I'm going to kill you. If you kill one of my family, I'm going to kill one of your family. That's not what this is. This is done by the government. In their case, it was the church as well. But this is the government justice. This is the idea of justice for wrong. So now Jesus is talking about the legislative laws. Again, he's saying, here is the Torah. This is how you do it. He's not saying, don't let there be justice. He's not saying, ignore wrongdoing. He's not saying, if there are criminals, let them go. That's not what he's saying. He, justice will be done. But it's not person to person. It's not for you to do it. It's for God and the government to do it. It's whatever institution is, is over you, that's, what the, that's who does it. But what I'm telling you, when Jesus tells you, is he is saying, he's so concerned with our hearts. He says, love your neighbor. If that person wrongs you, love them. If they steal from you, love them. If they assault you, love them. I mean, the heaviness of this he goes on in the next one, verses 43 and 44, it's like this one. You've heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is twofold. One is the disciples he's talking to are about to be persecuted. All of them except John are mur martyred. 
But this is Jesus saying, I believe to the extent that if somebody kills your husband or your wife or your child, let justice be done, but you love them. I mean, the weight of that. Jesus is saying, if you're going to follow me and be a follower of me and take my name upon you, to the extent that somebody wrongs you, love them. This is why we are told some of the good deeds and the good works of Christians, the things that we are supposed to live out, care for orphans, widows, and prisoners. We are to go into the prisons bringing the gospel to murderers, thieves, child molesters, you name it. Justice will be done. But Jesus says, if you're going to call yourself one of mine, love each other. To me, that is just, <laughs> and in nowhere in the New Old Testament does it say to hate your enemies. It doesn't say that anywhere. This is the only time Jesus says that. Why? Because he knows our hearts. He knows our natural reaction as humans to that level of wrong, that level of evil is hate. That is our response. My best friend is a cop in New York. He has seen some pretty nasty stuff. He and I have had some conversations, and I think there are some people he truly hates. Not because they did anything right, because they were evil human beings. But Jesus says, don't do that. Love them. In fact, pray for them. Pray for blessing in their life. Pray for God to show them his glory in Christ Jesus so that they may turn to Jesus. What? That is so against human nature. Not only do I want you to love them and care for them, I want you to pray for them. Pray for God's abundant love and blessing to pour out in their lives. Yeah, but God, do you know what they did? Doesn't matter. That is the mark of a follower of Christ. And that's hard. I promise you, we cannot do it without the help of the Holy Spirit. This is not something, Nathan said it a few weeks ago, in our willpower that we can just will ourselves to love people who are unloving. That requires the Holy Spirit working through you. It requires it. The fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5 are not just things, right? These are, these are the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, supernatural kindness, supernatural kinds of love. The kind of stuff that when you go into a prison and you minister to people and other people around you, the world looks at you and goes, how can you do that? Do you know who those people are? Jesus says, yeah, they're important too. I'm going to call the band back out as I wrap up here. These six antitheses that Jesus goes through establish his authority, establishes the authority of Scripture, gives us the mark of if you're going to be a follower of Christ, this is how you walk out obedience. And he goes on in chapters 6 and 7. But as I said in the beginning, to miss the mark, to, to, to do all these and miss Jesus, to be this obedient yet miss Christ, 
to check off this checklist and yet not see Jesus for who he is and not see that all of these laws and all of these commands point us to the need for a savior. They point us to needing Jesus because it is an impossible standard of righteousness for us. But for him, the perfect, unblemished, sacrificial lamb, he did it. He loved sinners and was persecuted for it. He ministered to prostitutes, tax collectors, lepers, the lowest of the low, and was persecuted for it, was killed for it. That is the mark of a follower of Christ. That level of love, but again, to miss Christ in that. All of this points to Jesus. Jesus concludes these six antitheses in verse 48, and he says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And this verse has been misinterpreted, I I don't even know how many times. We will not be perfect on this side of heaven. If you are a follower of Christ, you will be made perfect in his presence, because you have to be. You have to be perfect to stand before the Almighty. But the beautiful thing is, We take John 3.16 so lightly. But Jesus came. God loved us so much that he wants us in his presence. So much that Jesus died. So that we could be in the presence of God forever. The ultimate reward. Talks about whoever teaches these will be least and and greatest in heaven. But here's the deal. All of our rewards in heaven we're going to place at the feet of Jesus anyway. It's all for Jesus. It all points to Jesus. He fulfilled it all. And right now, if you are sitting here and you do not know Jesus, and you have never given your life, but yet you are worried about being obedient to God and being good enough for God, the good news, the gospel is, you can't be, but he was. He died and rose again so that we can be in the very presence of God forever. That is the greatest reward, I promise. We're going to transition into communion now. But as we we go through communion, if, if, if you have not given your life to Christ, the prayer partners will be up here. I encourage you, I urge you, to make that step today. It is more than just a prayer. It is, it is to walk with him. It is to be discipled. It is to disciple others. But it starts with acknowledging sin in your life and giving it over to Christ because he paid the price. And on the day before he died, he took bread and broke it, told his disciples, every time you gather, I want you to break bread and remember my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of him. In the same way, he took the cup, he blessed it, and he gave thanks to God that his blood was about to be poured out to cover our sins. He was perfect. He is perfect. And we are made perfect because of him. We do this in remembrance of him. Father, we thank you. 
That word thank you doesn't even cover it. The level of gratitude that we have for your love and your mercy and your son Jesus who voluntarily came down and stepped into creation to serve his creation. Let us not lose sight of the weight of that. It is in his name we pray and do all things. Amen.